It's April 1981, and this episode we look for Atari 8-bit references in the magazine's Compute, Creative Computing, and SoftSide, but jump ahead in time to cover our first homebrew game, Gem Drop by Bill Kendrick. This game also represents the first use of a software-driven graphics mode that Bill invented called Super IRG, and we have an interview with him to talk about it. Also, linear feedback shift registers, the competing machine, the Commodore VIC-20, gets its first review in a magazine, and I try to figure out if the Atari 8-bit world has an equivalent to Apple Steve Wozniak. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for Episode 7. Hi there, welcome to the Player Missile Podcast, where we talk about Atari 8-bit magazines and games and stuff and things. Mostly stuff, not so many things. So, Happy New Year, Happy Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus. There's a lot of holidays between the time I'm recording now and my last podcast. So I hope you had some good times, good holidays. My Thanksgiving was fun. I went home, visited my parents, and raided my parents' attic to locate my old 2600. I sent in some feedback to Ferg on his show, because his show, I really got enjoying just reminiscing about all the cartridges and stuff that I had. You know, I hadn't thought about the 2600 in years, and then started listening in his show to his show and getting involved again. I had that little contest with him, you know, where I played 2600 Space Invaders and he played the 800 Space Invaders. I don't know why, you know, after all this time, having played the many other systems, that I just started to get interested in the 2600 again trying to figure out where did I leave it. So I thought maybe my parents still had it, or at least at least a chance that they still had it. So when I went back for Thanksgiving, I raided their attic, went through a whole bunch of boxes, and as it turns out, I yeah, I was able to find it. It was buried in a bunch of cobwebs and other stuff. I found it's a six switch, I guess a light sixer they call it. So the doesn't have the full aluminum casing that some of the old twenty six hundreds had, or I guess the first series of twenty six hundreds had. But six switcher I found 15 cartridges, but I know I had more. I was trying to come up with the full list of the cartridges that I had, but I, I'm i sure I'm missing a couple. I'm, I posted a picture on Twitter of some of the cartridges I found. And stuff like River Raid, Combat, Skiing, Freeway by Activision, uh, Surround, which is kind of an old snake game, and a few others. I didn't see Space Invaders, and I'm sure I had Space Invaders. I'm also sure that I had the basic programming cartridge. Oh, Adventure I had, uh, and I found that one. Like, probably the game I played the most was Space Invaders, and, but yeah, I don't know what happened to that cartridge. So clearly, if you're interested in Atari stuff, you should be listening to Ferg's podcast. It's a, it's a fun podcast. And as I hope to get into at some point in the future, the 800 really is a, it's the logical next step of the 2600 hardware. And I hope to talk about, um, how, you know, the development and how it, it went into, from the 2600 to the 800, how the evolution of the hardware went right into the, the 800. In the meantime, till I get to that, if you're if you're more interested, you should read the book Atari Inc. Business is Fun by Kurt Vandell and Marty Goldberg. And there's a lot of stuff in there about the 2600 and the 800 and sort of the development of the, the company in between and, and the hardware development as it went on. Looking over all my 2600 cartridges, I was trying to figure out what was the latest one. And I mean, the last one I bought before getting the 8-bit system was probably the basic cartridge, which 
kind of pushed me over the edge to actually try to do some real programming on the 800 because I forget how many bytes of memory you had with uh, with the basic cartridge, but it was like 90 bytes or something. Oh, and the whole 2600 only had 128 bytes of RAM. So I'll include a link in the show notes to um, Ferg's episode where he covered basic programming. And I also I submitted that I submitted a little Christmas story to Ferg that he read, and I was too burned out on stuff to send him an audio submission. So, but I like the way Ferg reads e- emails. I like his laugh. <laughs> he's a he's a great laugh. So anyway, yeah, I was trying to figure out what was the latest or the the chronologically latest cartridge uh, for the 2600 that I had. I was thinking it might be River Raid. And one of the cool things about River Raid was the sort of pseudo-random terrain, or the amount of terrain it could generate, but that the terrain was always the same every time you played the game. And so there's a little article on Wikipedia that talks about um, how River Raid did that, given the constraint of all its limited memory. And, you know, the game really, it, the game doesn't store all that, because there's just not enough space in the 2600 or the cartridge to store a pre-generated terrain, so you've got to generate it procedurally somehow. And the way this, the way Wikipedia says, of course, you know, it's on Wikipedia, so it must be true, it said that uh, they use a a linear feedback shift register with a, a hard-coded initial vector to start. Because the initial value is hard-coded, the algorithm generates the same terrain every time it goes through the game. So uh, a Wikipedia rabbit hole I went down was to figure out about linear feedback shift registers. Several episodes back, we talked about random number... Actually, sort of for the last several episodes, we talked about ram- random number generators. And this is just one means of doing that. Generating a string of bits where you pop off one of the bits at the end of this list as the sort of pseudo-random bit I'm making air quotes with my fingers, in case you can't tell. And then, but so you need a new bit to come in to to replace the shifted value that was just shifted out. And then, as the bits shift around, and but you still you always need a new bit to come in. The new bits, you know, either a zero or one. So you've got to have some way to generate this, you know, pseudo random value. And so the way they do that is you you peg a, a particular set of bits, like the third bit and the seventh bit, and you have a operation that'll combine the values of those bits to generate the new value of the bit that gets stuffed in at the far side. And as the bits march down, you get different values that come out of these these selected registers. And the, I guess one of the valuable things about this is this can be implemented fairly easily in hardware, but of course you can also do it in software. Or something like that. This is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It's been a long time since I've done the research for this episode. Gosh, almost a month and a half since I've recorded my last episode. Wow. Certainly didn't intend for it to go that long. But all sorts of stuff happened, and then the holidays got in the way, and yeah, some other stuff, which I may talk about later on as I record here. But suffice it to say, I don't quote me on the description of the linear feedback shift register. I'm interested in this kind of stuff, and uh, there's a post on Twitter from uh, one of the people I follow from uh, UNI73, talked about the game Elite 2, which had 100 billion unique solar systems, and the game was distributed on two floppy disks. So clearly they had to generate all the solar systems and values and you know landscapes and whatever through a procedural means. Well, that's kind of a long introduction. And there's still a little bit more um, on the next podcast. So this podcast is not about the game I originally advertised. I really thought I was going to do uh, Eastern Front 1941 by Chris Crawford, but I just could not find the time to play that game or enough to really do it justice, because it's a strategy game, it takes a lot of work to understand, and then it takes a long time to play. I'm doing that game on the next show. This podcast is about Gem Drop by Bill Kendrick, which is a homebrew game that Bill did in the late 90s. I've also got an interview with Bill Kendrick in this episode, so stay tuned for that. That's a lot of fun. 
In terms of the next episode, it got me to thinking about Chris Crawford. He was an Atari employee and the author of Eastern Front 1941, and then Energy Czar, and he co-authored Dairy Atari. Um, he was the, the Atari employee probably most known for banging the drum inside the company to uh, publish all the internal docs to you know for developing on the system. So yeah, it got me to thinking, is, does everybody in the Atari community know him, or who would everybody know in the Atari community? I came up with a list of a few people, like uh, probably everybody would know Nolan Bushnell, but probably not Ted Dabney, I'm guessing. Probably not Jay Minor. It's probably too technical. And probably not people like Joe DeCure or even David Crane. Some people wouldn't know that the original Activision 4 were, all, were developing stuff for the Atari operating system. Would everybody know Jack Trammell? Would everybody know Tom Hudson or some of the analog or antic people? If I had to guess on the an- antic or analog side, I would probably say it would be Tom Hudson would be the, the name that most people would know. You know, we really don't have our sort of was... Because the 8-bit development was a team effort. As I mentioned, like Jay Miner was probably the most famous of that group. And he went on to do the next generation of Atari hardware as the Amiga computer. Yeah, as another aside, if I had really known that the Amiga was the direct descendant of the Atari, I probably would have gone with the Amiga rather than the Atari ST. Well, anyway, so, I don't know, Jay Miner is probably the closest to uh, our famous WASC-style person, even though the 8-bit was a, a much more team-oriented design. But, you know, people like Joe DeCure and George McCloud, you know, a lot of people who are developing the hardware who deserve a lot of credit. But, you know, we just don't have our single Waz figure in the Atari 8-bit land, I don't think. Let me know if I'm off base on that. So anyway, whenever I'm thinking about stuff to talk about in the podcast, I always think, I'm never going to have enough things. I'm never going to fill, how am I going to fill up, you know, an hour's worth of stuff? And here it is, I've been recording for probably 20 minutes and I haven't even gotten to the feedback section. So I should just stop worrying about how much I get down on paper. You know, I take a lot of notes and stuff to write the podcast. And, you know, I, I sit with my notes in front of me when I'm talking. And it looks so sparse. And yet, you know, I've probably got... Here, let me look it up. Look at my notes here. I'm on line 50 of my notes. And I've got 600 lines in my notes. So, yeah, I think I think I really don't have to worry about the length of this episode. It's probably going to be fine. But now I lost my place. So where was I? Oh, yeah, feedback. Okay. So I consider you a friend of the show if you write in multiple times. So friend of the show, Michael Portuizi, said, uh, Rob, the March 1981 episode of Player Missile is your best yet. I found all the nerdy talk fascinating. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Michael. Yeah, I had a, I really enjoy the technical stuff, and I'm trying not to be so overly technical as to turn people off. But on the other hand, I really like the technical stuff. So I, I will continue talking about technical topics, and I will try not to make it so technical as to like be uninteresting. I'm not trying to do a lecture for sure. But back to Michael, he said there's a technical issue I wanted to mention from your interview with Paul Hegstrom. He said Paul explained how colors are generated in the high resolution mode on the Apple II by positioning even or odd pixels to select colors and further a high bit in each byte of screen memory to select a palette, the red, blue, or green, purple palette. As you know, the Atari is capable of the same behavior in its highest res mode, graphics 8 or Antic F, but the Atari doesn't offer a replacement palette. So you're restricted to a single color palette, which was red and blue for the Ataris with the CTIA and green and purple on the Ataris with the GTIA. The missing two colors do pose a challenge for someone who wants to directly port an Apple II game to the Atari. And you can see this in some Apple games, like uh, Pinball Construction Set, which offered only green and purple in its paint tools, not the red and blue. The software that uses this technique on the Atari also had to check for which chip was installed, either the GTIA or CTIA, and adjust accordingly. And I came across an article, maybe in Computer Creative Computing, on how to program this check. 
and I'm sure you'll find it eventually. So yeah, I haven't I haven't seen it yet, but I and in fact the GTIA doesn't come out until huh eighty two maybe I'll have to look that up. But I don't think in eighty one I don't think the GTIA is available widely if at all yet. So he he goes on to say, looking for the next next episode and thanks for producing the podcast. I sent him a reply saying that I meant to get into more of that artifacting stuff. And, uh, you know, I tried to test the artifacting, but I couldn't figure out if changing the foreground or background color really had much effect on the, the generated artifacted colors. And I asked Michael about that, and he didn't remember either. He said, I don't think I can test it out now because my 130XE is connected to a modern LCD via the S-Video. And he goes on to write in, in this uh, subsequent email. He said, listening to the play-by-play of the Apple II video hardware was fun. Developers might find the Apple II's video architecture unfriendly, but you have to admit there's some ingenuity and some clever hacks going on to get the hardware to produce uh, high-resolution color graphics with a minimum of memory and part count. As an aside, that was certainly Waz's sort of claim to fame was his just uncanny ability to reduce the number of chips required. And then as an aside, he said, I finally typed in my Compute Magazine listing and got it running on the 130XE. So yeah, I'm looking forward to featuring that at some point, because I think, as I mentioned, oh, which he's long, a while ago, he wrote a program called Superplot that was published in one of the um, Compute Best Of books. And so I'll be featuring that program in a subsequent episode. Speaking of the Apple II, I had mentioned in the Sabotage podcast that I couldn't really run the Apple II emulator on Linux because it wasn't a good, a good Linux emulator. Well, Atari Age user Seamus, the very same guy who did the Sabotage port, sent me to a link to his Apple II emulator that runs on Linux. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And it runs Sabotage perfectly. It's exactly the way I remember it. The colors are right, the sound is right, and I'm excited to be able to run that. I haven't compiled it on the Raspberry Pi yet, but I'm, I'm going to do that soon. Because that's going to be, the Raspberry Pi is going to be my basis for my uh, main cabinet, and all the games I'm going to play are going to have to run on Linux. And so, I'm glad to have an Apple II emulator that I can run on Linux. Got some more feedback from Jonathan Jackson, who said, I wanted to send you a quick hello from England and congratulate you on your excellent podcast, which really hits the spot. Being in my mid-40s, I grew up in the golden age of computers, and I got my first computer in 1982, an Atari 400 with a 410 program recorder. I spent many, many hours with magazines, typing in the listings and debugging them, and trying to learn all I could about the computers. Although I never really got heavily technical, I love hearing the technical aspects of your podcasts, as I think it's a perfect good place for me and brings back so many memories. As an aside, I just listened to um, Rob O'Hara's most recent um, podcast about cassettes. Oh, yeah, I'll include a link to the You Don't Know Flack. And he talks about how it seems that a lot of Users in the UK started out with cassette drives and kept the cassettes throughout, whereas it seems a lot of the folks here in the US immediately abandoned the cassettes as soon as they could and, and went to floppies. Part of it, I think, was probably the expense. I think the exchange rate was poor, and so the floppies really cost a lot in the UK. I'll have to actually I'll look that up and see, you know, see what the price difference was in the, in the UK versus the US. Because so I've done some exchange rate conversions for the US stuff at that time, but I haven't actually looked at the UK, so... Yeah, I'll have to kind of see how much the the floppy drives were in the UK. But anyway, Jonathan continues, I really miss the good old times of reading the magazines, learning, researching, and writing programs. Things just aren't the same anymore. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) 
So Jonathan continues, In England, the Atari didn't seem to be as popular as the Commodores and the Spectrum, so all my collective learning was from magazines. But I don't think you can beat the buzz of learning something new or overcoming a problem with the help of a magazine. And then trying it out for yourself. The first game we bought was Preppy, and I remember being completely blown away with the graphics and music. Yeah, Preppy is definitely one of the games that I will review on this podcast. I haven't played it in forever, actually, and so I might actually, I might hold off and not play it until I until I get to that episode. I think Preppy's a 90, an 82 game, off the top of my head. Uh, I don't know. So Jonathan goes on, Later I upgraded to an 800XL on the 1050 disk drive, and all the fun that DOS brought over the cassette tapes. I was fortunate enough to get the odd issue of Antic or Analog, but unfortunately not every issue. And I remember some fantastic games typed in from there, like Adventure in the Fifth Dimension, Livewire. I'm really looking forward to you getting to the time frame when I got my Atari so that I can relate to the time in the games. And I'd be happy to suggest a few games that I can remember for you to talk about, if that helps. Well, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a list of games on the website, or like possible games. And as I have gotten into trying to play Eastern Front and the just the time that takes, I think I'm probably going to have to start nixing strategy games. So it's probably going to be arcade-style games only for the foreseeable future. It was kind of a shame, because I remember Ultima 3, Ultima 4, those were, like, two of my favorite games on the Atari, but I just don't see that I'll have the time to review those and do them justice, you know, but, of course, that's not till 83, 85, stuff like that, so still got a ways before I would even get there, but, but Jonathan continues again, he said, I really love the time with and my Atari computers and lost so much time to them, oh, the good old days, well, keep up the excellent work, love it. It's a bit like the excitement waiting for the next Atari magazine back in the day, waiting for your next podcast. The pacing and technical stuff is just perfect. So thank you for the revival. I think I'm going to try to get my emulator working to relive the good old times. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks a lot for writing in. I really appreciate that. It's emails like this that keep keep me going because, you know, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of time to balance, you know, family time and free time and work time. (laughs) So yeah, I really appreciate the feedback. I got some feedback from Wade of the Inverse Tatasky podcast, and I had mentioned previously about going to Kansas Fest, and he said that he might be interested in going to Kansas Fest as well. So that'd be cool to have a little podcasting summit of Atari people at Kansas Fest. On the latest Antic episode, they mentioned that Brad is putting together the VCF Southeast, um, which is a thing sometime in March. And Kevin thought that I had committed to going to that one, but actually I was talking about Kansas Fest. Um, I think VCFSE is in March, and my March doesn't look good for traveling. So yeah, I'm still considering going to Kansas Fest, crashing it with the, my Atari flag in tow. I got some more feedback from Brian Keating, who said, Hi Rob, great podcast, and now you've got me looking at Atari Hunters on eBay, so way to go. I never really gave much thought to video games creating fatalistic attitudes, and I found Rob Fulop's take on this interesting. So he's talking about uh, the Rob the Rob Fulop episode back of the Space Invaders. I talked about the video games and how Rob Fulop had this take that it was kind of, I don't know, that the idea that you always lose in video games was sort of affecting the psyche of kids as they grew up, contrasting that to the idea of watching sitcoms and stuff before games came around, where every every little plot thread was wrapped up in a neat little bow at the end and everybody lived happily ever after. So Brian says, I never really gave much thought to video games creating fatalistic attitudes and I found Rob Fulop's take on this interesting, but I have mixed feelings on his opinion. And one way to look at it is that as I take a look around at other Gen X folks like myself, I can tell we're a cynical lot, and I do wonder that this had something to do with what Fulop was alluding to. I say this also considering that Gen X was the first generation to really grow up with video games as readily available forms of entertainment, both at home and the arcade. 
But on the other hand, I do disagree with Fulop. I think that the hard video games back then didn't teach us fatalism, but rather perseverance. And these games didn't make us just throw our hands up in the air and give up. They made us think hard about how to beat them, or even just how to get a few more levels or points out of them to beat a personal record. Like I said, it was an interesting comment on his part. And, and by the way, thinking about eBay, I've heard a lot of other people say that if you want to get an old Atari computer for gaming, the 800 is probably the best. However, I've also heard a lot about the XL and the XE, so what's the best way to go? So he says, thanks again, and thanks, thank you for the wonderful podcast. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot for writing, Brian. You know, in terms of eBay and what computer to buy, you know, I, I sent Brian an email kind of talking about this, but, you know, I'm certainly not the collector type, and I'm not the best person to ask this, but if I had to, if if forced, if somebody were to say, okay, what computer would you buy if you just had to have one and I was going to run the most stuff, I'd probably, I guess I'd probably say the 800XL. That would be my totally uninformed opinion. I mean, the XLs are around for longer and most of the modern stuff relies on the GTIA. And I think the 800XL probably has the most expansion possibilities now. Most of the hardware that I've heard on the Antic podcast and stuff or the hardware hacks are for the XL series. I haven't heard a lot of hardware hacks for the XEs. Well, the XE, the 130XE certainly has a lot more memory. So, I don't know. Actually, I don't think you can go wrong with any Atari 8-bit computer. So, I'm not biased or anything, though. As long as it doesn't say Commodore or Apple on the front, you're good. I kid, I kid. The 10 Pence Arcade guys also mentioned the show again. They covered Space Invaders in their episode 25. And it also shows you how long it's been since I recorded an episode, because their episode 25 came out right about the same time as my last episode. And as of today, they're up to episode 28. But anyway, they're talking about the myth of the 100 yen coin shortage that I also talked about. I found this link to a numismatist. I think that's how you pronounce it. A numismatist who went back and sort of debunked the whole 100 yen coin shortage myth. And they alluded to that. Anyway... Tenpence Arcade is a great podcast, and I love the little graphics they do also for each game on their website. They superimpose some caricatures of themselves over uh, the, the Game of the Week graphics. So it's very nice to so check out their podcast if you've not already. And Sean even went on to say that he listened to the show even though he didn't have an Atari, which is super cool. So to Sean and others that didn't have Ataris, I'm glad you're listening to me blab on about the machine that I loved growing up as a kid. And I'd be interested in hearing your perspective as compared to the machines that you grew up with. All right, let's get into the magazines. So we're at April 1981. First magazine to look at is Compute Number 11. And as an aside, the Antic podcast, they're doing a whole set of interview podcasts, interview-only episodes. And episodes, interview episode 7 is with Bill Wilkinson of optimized system software fame. But he also is the author of an Insight Atari column, which starts up in Compute in October of 81. So a few more episodes down the road and we'll get into that, which I'm looking forward to. I don't really remember that, but I think he said in the interview that he wrote it until like 88 or something, or 87, whenever whenever Compute dropped the uh, Atari 8-bit support. It's a long-running column. Looking forward to getting into that. So on the cover of this uh, uh, this issue is it's dominated by the uh, VIC-20, it says, presenting VIC the Magnificent, a product review of the $299 VIC-20 computer. So before they get to the major article about the VIC-20, there is a article about keyboard layouts, which I find interesting because um, I use a Dvorak keyboard, actually, when I type. And there's a there's actually 
talk in this magazine. So this is 81. There's talk of, of the Dvorak keyboard in comparison between the QWERTY keyboard, which I I hadn't remembered, but it was... Uh, their real name is the Shoals keyboard, which is sort of apocryphally known as being hard to, to use, uh, so it wouldn't tie, it wouldn't jam on mechanical keyboards. But I guess that's a true story. So it puts commonly spaced key or commonly used keys far apart on the keyboard to prevent keyboard jams of uh, these old mechanical typewriters. So talking about the Dvorak keyboard, I got into it because I thought would reduce, you know, the reduce the fatigue, reduce the, the travel of, the, of my fingers as they, because of the, the Dwarf keyboard is all the most commonly used characters are on the home row. This is in English, of course. There are other Dwarf style layouts for other languages, but in English, all the vowels are on your left hand and the most common uh, consonants, uh, D, T, H, N, and S. Let's see if I count. D, T, H, N, S. Yeah. D, T, H, N, and S are on the right hand side home row. So I forget, you can type something like 30-some percent of the English language words without your fingers leaving the home row. So the magazine says it takes about a month to train, and there's a purported speed increase, and it's easier on you know repetitive stress injuries. But I think in the... It's sort of been... I mean, that the Dvorak, when he, when he created the um, layout, sort of, I think, inflated some of these ter- these uh, um, claims. So there's been some res- some research about it. And the the comic consensus now is after some about a research is that at most there's a small increase and some studies point to like two to four percent increase typing speed. So all that effort I put into learning Dvorak is <laughs> probably wasn't that effective in solving my my you know typing issues. Probably it was more my you know either my posture or my or holding my arms in a better position probably did more than anything. But as uh, as a lot of the people say, that it's it's very effective in keeping other people off your machine. So there is that. The big article in the magazine is about the first look at the VIC twenty. So the VIC twenty is the first computer below three hundred dollars. Although you know in today's dollars it's like eight hundred and ten. So the article has a, a bunch of praise about the VIC twenty, and it starts off for those of who, for those of you who have yet to see a photograph of the VIC is about the smallest size a computer could be and still have a full size keyboard. This compact size makes the VIC eat fit easily into almost any imaginable home location, an important feature with other manufacturers have yet to understand. So yeah, when you think about the design of the VIC, it's it's like pretty much the same as all the other computers that would come out later, you know, the 800XL, the Commodore 64. So I don't know, there's, a, there's certainly an, an era in time where all the keyboard, all the computers look like this. The article goes on, it says that the VIC-20 is an astounding machine for the price is unquestioned. And then they compare it a little bit to the uh, TRS-80 and the Atari 400. And, you know, clearly the Atari is the winner in the graphics realm. The resolution on the VIC-20, it says, is 176 by 176 pixels, which I think works out to, what do they say, 23 lines of 22 characters? I Yeah, I've mentioned this in previous podcasts. I've not really looked at the VIC-20 much, nor the Commodore 64, and I, I need to rectify that at some point. Because uh, I am interested, especially the Commodore 64, because that's that's very equivalent to the uh, 800 in terms of you know resolution and and sound and stuff, but the architecture is much different and how the graphics works are, are different. So I'm I'm looking forward to total learning about that in in future episodes. So in terms of sound, I don't the Vic doesn't have the SID chip yet, but it says it supports three musical tone generators of three octaves each, 
and one sound effects generator. The TRS-80 uh, only had one sound channel. Of course, the Atari has the, the four Pokey channels. I'm trying to think, which TRS-80 were they comparing to? Oh, the color computer. One of the nice things about the VIC-20, apparently, was that it, it provides it power to the cassette recorder, which the Atari didn't. The Atari had to get a plug in your, the cassette recorder separately. It said floppy drives are planned for the VIC-20 and are available for the Atari 400, but <laughs> at a huge price. I think an 810 costs more than a 400. So internally, VIC-20 uses the 6502, same as the Atari, and has 5 kilobytes of RAM. And then it says, in what appears to be a unique packaging idea, the VIC has a single external cartridge slot which accepts combinations of RAM and ROM, and a 3 kilobyte RAM expansion will be available from Commodore soon. And they, they do some sort of benchmarking. And I'm still, I'm continually amazed at how poorly the Atari Basic does in benchmark times. So they ran some stuff. They ran a simple program, just essentially a busy loop. And the VIC-20 did it in 77 seconds. The Coco, which has, what is, the, is that Coco? I have a 6800 or Z80? Hmm, I forget. Okay, pause for Google search, and it was a 6809 for the Coco. Okay, so back to the benchmarks. Yeah, so the VIC-20 ran this loop in 77 seconds, the Coco in 103, and the Atari 400 in 159 seconds, so double the VIC-20. And you add a print statement in in the middle, and the VIC jumps up to 349 seconds, the Coco to 280 seconds, so the Coco now is the winner, and the Atari trailing well behind at 540 seconds. There's another article on the mysterious and unpredictable R&D function. Continuing series on the random number generators. So this article is all about creating Dungeons and Dragons characters and using multiple six-sided die rolls. Yeah, as an aside, when I was up in the attic with um, searching for the twenty-six hundred stuff, I found my old bag of D and D dice. You know, all the twenty-sided, twelve-sided, all that stuff. So that was fun. The Atari Gazette this month has a program called Supercube, which draws these little isometric cubes. That was a type in that I didn't actually try. So. There was a how-to on uh, printing characters on custom display lists. Uh, normal print routines, if you've got like some a graphics mode with some text and some graphics on it, normal print routines will give you out-of-range errors. So there's a little basic routine here to, to poke characters in the display memory you know, from basic. There's another little simple basic program uh, demonstrating player missile graphics called Invaders from Outer Space. There's some stuff on string arrays in Atari Basic. So the um, Microsoft Basic and Atari Basic were incompatible in the way they handled strings. And the, the Atari 8-bit basic references strings as sort of like slices. Like um, in Python, you, you sort of generate a first and a last index, and you can get substrings out of that. So that's how the Atari basic was sort of implemented, which I didn't really call. I don't really recall much of the details about Atari basic, actually. Something I'd hope to re- remedy at some point. There's a review of Super Breakout by Atari, which we've already covered. And there's a little routine to help speed up player missile graphics being called from uh, basics. So it was an assembly routine to move a player up and down in memory. The final article we'll talk about here is uh, one that's uh, it's called Unleash the Power of Your Atari CPU. As I'm reading this, I got a few sentences in. I was like, wait a minute, I've seen this before. It's the exact same article that appeared in Analog Number 2, the March-April issue, which, uh, word for word, same grammatical errors also. The one, the one sentence includes, uh, the Atari chip fetches its data where ITS is spelled IT apostrophe S. It's a contraction. What's a contraction? So it is versus its possessive. 
So, yeah, so the same author, same everything. I just found it interesting that, that it would be duplicated, the same article would be duplicated in both these magazines. You know, basically what it is, it's showing the DMA timings, essentially how much Antic is stealing your processor time. Moving on to Creative Computing, Volume 7, Number 4, for April 1981. There's a picture of the Osborne 1 on the cover. So this is a, a portable in the sense that it's luggable, and it's got this tiny 5-inch screen, and like the two floppies on the side and stuff. There's an ad for TSE Hardside inside the front cover, which is the sort of software distribution arm of Softside Magazine. So in this issue, there's an article about 80-column cards for the Apple II, and at some point, I'll be interested in looking into the 80-column solutions for the Atari 8-bit systems. And I never had one. I used, you know, Atari Writer and stuff just in 40-column mode. So I'll be sort of interested to see how they work. I mean, there's one that's driven through the joystick port somehow, and I don't understand how that works. There's talk about the Atari Music Composer cartridge, which was discussed in Analog number one and number two, and I also talked about in some previous episodes. There's an ad for the Sinclair ZX80 computer, which I'll go ahead and call ZX80 because it's a UK computer, but it uses a Z80 processor, not a Z80. Z80 is an American processor, so it's an American processor in a ZX80 machine. A Z80 and a ZX80. How's that? So... Take that, Mike and Carrington. There's an article by uh, George Blank, who's the Outpost Atari column guy. It's a how to. It's a walkthrough of connecting pretty much from from scratch. A walkthrough of connecting the the Telelink cartridge up to a a CompuServe, the BBS. There's an ad for online systems, the High Res Adventure online systems, which talked about in the previous couple episodes. Uh, the feature article in, from the magazine is the Osborne One, which is a Z80 processor running CPM 2.2. The little teeny little screen is a 52 by 24 character text screen, and it's just teeny teeny tiny. I think the history of personal computer guys have not gotten to the Osborne yet. Yeah, yeah, in fact, that's, I think that's true. They are still on... I think the last episode I listened to was the Apple II episode. So that's 91. I think they've got the Apple II, then TRS-80, and something else has come out. Um, yeah, they aren't quite the Osborne, but I'm sure they'll cover that in the Osborne, because that's definitely a significant computer. There's an article on a ciphering technique, and if you haven't figured it out by now... I'm a numbers guy. I'm a dweeb, all right? I apologize. I'm a bit of a nerd about these kind of things. Yeah, so I love this stuff. There's a bunch of great books on. There's a code book by C- Simon Singh who I'd recommend as a sort of general introduction and primer to codes and ciphers and decoding and stuff. So in this article, they talk about the Ovaltine Captain Midnight Secret Squadron, which is a like a simple Caesar cipher. And they go on and they build up and they talk about the hardware implementation of a, a linear feedback shift register circuit, which we talked about earlier in reference to River Raid. So there's a hardware implementation that they, sh- they describe. So it talks about how the bits are generated and it gives a better description of, of my sort of fumbling description earlier in the River Raid section. Basically, the bits are cascaded down, and the, the bit that gets inserted is the, in this case, it's the mod base 2 of a certain number of bits, like the bit in the first position, second position, fifth position, and sixth position, is added up, modded together, mod 2, and stuck in the in bit 0, and then the output is the leftmost bit, bit 6. And so it says, needless to say, at least one of the registers in the linear feedback shift register generator must must be initialized with a 1, or the, all the generator is going to produce zeros. And it says, similarly, if an all-zero state ever occurs in the course of operation, only zeros will be generated from then on. So the number of different states in the generator depends on the number of bits. So a 6-bit register can generate sequences up to 63 bits long, while 
uh, a 12 register generator can produce a 4,095 bits long. So this is unique, uh, the unique bit pattern before it starts to repeat. So if you want a hugely random one, you're going to have to take a, a you know, 24 bit uh, register or something, which will, you know, generate millions of combinations. So Outpost Atari is back for this issue. It's the same author, George Blank. Uh, it has some modifications of the, some programs that were in the January issue, like moving player missiles around and some using string string handling functions of BASIC to do it. And there's lots of descriptions of the inner workings of BASIC, so it describes how variables are stored in memory and sort of the structures that are used to, to reference each variable. Now, I guess I didn't realize this, but there are only 128 variables available in all of BASIC, so each program can only use 128 variables. Did not realize that, or didn't remember that. Softside... Issue number 31 for April is a photo of a two-lane bridge, sort of steel truss, semi-circular arch-shaped thingy. It um, kind of reminds me of the 360 bridge in Austin, but it's a two-lane road, or what in the U.S. we'd call a two-lane road, which is one lane each direction. I think I think in the U.K. it's different. Like a dual carriageway is two lanes on each side, which is what I would call a four-lane road. But then they have one-lane roads in the U.K., which are actually like a single lane, whereas if two cars are approaching from different directions, one has to get out of the way because it only fits like a single car. So I don't know what that's called. I forget what a two-lane road actually would be in the UK. So I don't know, just another example of the two countries separated by a common language. So anyway, back to the magazine. There are various ads throughout for TSE Hardside with uh, Atari stuff. There are three games in here that have uh, Atari ports. There is... Well, not games really. There's Two games and a software demo. The demo is Handel's Messiah, written in BASIC, which I will play at the end of the podcast. The One of the two games is called Convoy, which is a convoy construction and guidance program during World War II. So you're ferrying supplies to Russia in early 1941. So it's very, very low. Uh, Lowers graphics. Graphics 3. And it's slow moving, and I didn't have the patience to continue. So they just setting up the convoys was an exercise in press this button, hit return. Press another button, hit return. Press another button, hit return. And if you make a mistake, you're hosed because you can't go back. So yeah, I didn't have the patience for that. The other game in this issue is called Strategy Strike, which is basically Stratego. I don't know if you remember Stratego, but that's a board game where you have all these little tiles that have um, different rankings of soldiers and stuff and spies and bombs and flags, and the object is to capture the other guy's flag. But you can't see what an enemy unit is until you try to attack it. So this is an implementation of that, and uh, I assume it's a two-player game, but it was super annoying to try to set up the pieces because you had to go through each board square, square by square, and put a which piece was going to be in that square. And you had to do that for both sides. So, you know, we have to take turns, the other person leave the room and stuff. So clearly this would be better as some sort of networked game. I really need some bumpers between segments. I like Wade's little synthesized speech between his segments in the Inverse Itasky podcast, so I might just steal that idea. Or maybe I'll see if, uh, like, Paul Nermanen has some music that I could use. Uh, I don't know, am I just, am I the only one who rewinds and replays the outro music to the Intellivisionaries? I just love that track, uh, Treasured, it's called. And especially this little bit. You have just seen a demonstration of Tell Electronics in television. In the next several years, you will see its hardware components and software library in the show notes, I'll provide a link to the a direct download to some of the Intellivisionaries music that Paul put up. So that's it for the magazines. 
originally I intended to start a, a sort of a technical segment of the podcast where I'd get into, you know, designing a game and sort of developing a game through a, ser- a series of podcasts. My intent was to, was to use a CC65 and cross-compile it to the Atari. And so for a, a glorious, like, two days, I had all these grand designs of how I would do this. And the interview with Bill, Bill Kendrick, which you'll hear in a few minutes, was kind of based on that thought that I would be able to start trying to design my own game. But then, you know, real life got in the way, and just all this stuff happened. You know, the holidays came up, and just all sorts of things just happened. So, yeah, I think for the foreseeable future, that is not going to happen. Although, I, I would still like to try to do that at some point. But So, this w- would have been a tech segment. So I may still put the links in the show notes for that. You know, I found there's a bunch of 8-bit tools that I found, and there is a, a Mac 65 cross-assembler. And I found any number of font editors, including one by Bill Kendrick, which runs on actual 8-bit hardware. And there's another one that runs on the old PCs. It's called Envision. But I actually don't know if that runs on current PC hardware. So anyway, I I lament the section that could have been, but maybe it will be in a future episode. Let's move on to the game review of Gem Drop. Gem Drop is a homebrew game. It was designed by Bill Kendrick in the late 1990s. It's based on the game Magical Drop 3 by SNK, which was an arcade game, I think a Neo Geo-based game. And there's a... Bill Kendrick also did a port. I guess, well, I guess the original version was uh, written for X Windows on Unix, and then he ported SDL so it can run on other platforms. So there's a version that runs on modern systems as well as uh, 8-bit platforms. So this game is a it's a very fun little pick up and play, and it's kind of you know on the on the order of a like an iPhone game. You can pick it up, you can play it for a few minutes, and you can go on your way. It's kind of a yeah reverse Tetris where you're you have this little guy on the bottom and you pull gems down from the top of the screen that has these rows of gems, and then when you gather enough of the same color, you can shoot them back up toward the top, and if they hit the gems of the same color, those will explode. And the idea is to, is to every time you blow up some of these gems, that's a line, and you have to get these, some, some, number, some number of lines for each level. It was written by Bill Kendrick. It's open source. His sort of open source storefront is newbreedsoftware.com, so I'll include a link to that. Bill's also the author of Tux Paint, which is a program that has a lot of saturation in it. It's a sort of a kid's painting program, but it's been ported to a wide variety of stuff, including, I think, the... Um, is it Exo Laptop? I think it's been ported to the Exo. Bill's a big believer in open, open source, as am I, and because everything that he's written has been open source, it's available on his website. He wrote Gem Drop in Action, the action programming language. And... Well, now's probably a good a time as any to get to the interview with Bill Kendrick. So I recorded this about a month ago, and I intended to have this out before the Christmas and New Year's holidays and stuff, but yeah, obviously I didn't. But uh, this is an interview with Bill Kendrick where we talk about Gem Drop, and then in particular, the graphics mode that he used to as sort of a, that Gem Drop was a showcase of. It's based on Antic Mode 4 called Super IRG. It's a way to get more colors than are normally available on the Atari. So normally you can only get five colors out of Antic 4 and 5. But this is a way he found out by essentially doing only one thing, just changing 
a character set at a, at a vertical blank interrupt, you can make it appear that there are more colors on the screen at once by... It's not flickering... It's not exactly what you think is flickering, but... I mean, essentially, it could be, because what you're doing, you're, you're changing two character sets in and out at either at each vertical blank. And on a real hardware, because it happens, you know, at every 60th of a second, you really have the perception of multiple colors, you know, many more colors than you can see in normally. On the emulators, it works, mm, you know, not so great. The It works the best on Altera, which has a flame, a frame blending, um, checkbox that you can turn on and when when you when you blend, blend successive frames it, the colors do really pop out as to, as to what they what he intends but on the other emulators it seems like there are some frames linger a little bit longer than others and so you can you can't actually see the the flickering effect but anyway here's an interview with Bill Kendrick where we talk about his super IRG graphics modes and gem drop so just a note about the interview quality Skype seemed to be clipping his mic and we couldn't correct it Although, to some extent, it is amazing that Skype even has a Linux client. But still, it doesn't excuse the poor quality of that client. But additionally, sound problems are also notoriously difficult to figure out on Linux. It's sort of the blessing and the curse of open source, is there's more than one way to do it, but there's more than one way to do it. You know, I'm just getting back in the scene, really, and, and so really, Gem Drop's the first homebrew game I've played. Oh, right on. Cool. So... Yeah. It was one of the earliest because I never left. I never left the uh, the scene really. You um, never left the scene. That's that's great. I never I never left the scene. So it's not like I came back and said I'm gonna make a homebrew now. I just I was just doing it. You know, it was it wasn't retro back then. I guess I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, what? I know you were because um, you and I both started with the 1200 XL. And, yep. uh, did you ever really set it down for any period of time, or was it? Um, it, it got lost in the shuffle at a uh, Bob Ruiz house. Um, he. He's done a couple of upgrades for me. Um, initially, way back in the day, like the early to mid-90s, probably, um, he gave me a uh, quarter meg upgrade, so 256k total, so basically okay. 190, 192 on top of what it had. Um, and uh, 800XL OS, and I forgot about this, but it actually has, um, if I switch the, the channel the RF channel switch in the back, I can switch to 800 mode if I want. So it's basically dual, o- dual OS, although I never have any reason to do that. Oh, um, yeah, he was going to do something fancy like a CF card hard drive or something at one point, and uh, I kind of lost touch with him for a while, and eventually I'm like, can, can I have my 1200XL back? And, <laughs> um, <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't find it immediately, but he basically, basically gave me a loaner. And then one day I was looking at my, my home laptop and realizing how busted up my um, A and S keys get just from, like, banging on them the way I type. I don't type touch type. I, I type the way I figured it out as a kid. So oh, yeah. I type fast enough, I guess, but it just it looks ridiculous the way I type. Um, and it occurred to me, like, oh, you know what? He could probably, like, if he looks at all the keyboards of, this, <laughs> of the 1200 XLs he had there, he could probably spot mine just based on the wear, you know? Like, look, <laughs> look, look for one that has, like, little kid fingernail marks on the A key or, like, the brake keys worn out, you know? And, and he found it. So I, so I thought that was it. Like, yeah, I got my childhood run back after a few years at his place. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's that's the one I've been banging on lately, trying to trying to do trackball programming in action, which is. Uh, oh yeah, I saw your post on. Uh, yeah, I finally. Twitter, I yeah, I gotten over hump with that, so I'm, I'm actually able to to read it and not crash the thing constantly. So that's nice. I feel like I'm programming again. <laughs> 
so you never really gave up sort of programming on the 6502. <laughs> when you put it that way, <laughs> let's 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 be serious here. I'm 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 not an assembly language programmer, so I don't I don't consider myself programming the 6502. I program whatever language that compiles or or interprets onto the 6502, like like basic or something. Um, but but you uh, did you use action I think for gem drop. I did, yeah. I um, uh, wrote it in action. Um, i trying to remember if I did any just straight basic or turbo basic um, prototyping, but I don't think I did. I think I was I was in the groove enough with action at the time. Uh, unlike now, where I go back to action and I'm constantly trying to remember, like, how do I make a function? <laughs> you know, having to, having to dig through the, uh, the instruction manual, the, the manual that comes with it. Yeah, I've never looked at action, and I've, I've sort of, you know, I'm sort of contemplating a new little segment of the podcast where I'm going to talk about developing a game, and then I... I just keep falling back to CC65 because I know C and it's just easier to, to deal with an action. But, you know, action is kind of the, to me, it was like the best way to develop stuff back then. You know, it was the, the most sort of intuitive yet it compiled to 6502. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a fairly well-defined language. Um, it, it has its, its bugs and its warts. And, you know, trying to program on the Atari um, is, is frustrating if you're trying to do anything kind of dangerously complicated like like a vertical blank interrupt or something like that where you can absolutely hose the machine oh, right, in the yeah. middle. Um, you know, trash DOS. Uh, suddenly, you know, try to write your file back to disk and you're, you're totally corrupting your, <laughs> your disk image yeah. or whatever. Um, but, you know, what, what, <laughs> that's part of the fun almost. But, um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm also very keen on, on figuring out how to do CC65. Um, for me, the best would be, would be some kind of Linux-based platform and at the same time hook my 1200XL up as the keyboard because... That's the best keyboard in the world, basically. <laughs> rather, rather than suffer with a laptop keyboard. But, uh, but yeah, I, I would like to get into CC65 as well. Um, it seems like it's better supported on some other platforms, like like the NES or the Apple II or the Commodore 64. But, but interestingly, you sent me a, a link that said it was actually developed first for the Atari. Yeah, you have the CC65 you have on your, your Windows box, your Linux box, is basically like a rewrite of the CC65 that you know people had back on the Atari back in the you know late 80s, early 90s, whenever it was. Um, in that sense, it's it's there's a heritage there and probably some level of compatibility. Although I'm sure it's diverged quite a bit since then, since you know we're in modern times now. And um, but uh, but yeah, I think the irony is yeah, other platforms picked up <clears throat> picked it up more for for development. Yeah. Today it seems like um, Woodson, like a plugin for Eclipse. I, I never, oh, I, I, I never, never about that, yeah. yeah, I never use Eclipse, but Woodson is. A tool that people seem to use, and then um, the Mads Mads uh, assembler. Um, and oh, so speaking of action, mm-hmm. I, I think the other day I, I was reminded that one of the the projects to try to get, you know, action cross compiling on a, a PC. So basically, that would be my dream to be able to run to be able to write action code on my laptop and then have it compile to six five zero two on the Atari. Um, I believe that that goal, the goal of that project was to to take action uh, source and convert it into assembler that Mads would use because I, I guess oh, right. that's like the the gold standard these days is is the Mads. Cross assembler, um, but again, this is just like I only vaguely know about this in my peripheral vision. I'm not at all an expert in that kind of stuff, but it's it's something that I'd like to get into in my copious free time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm just so dependent on modern editors now. I don't know that I could go back to to you know typing on the 800. And so yeah, I'm definitely looking at a cross compiling yeah. solution. You know, I never got into action far enough to do anything really. So I would be like learning a new language. Yeah. At this point. It's very it's very C like Pascalish. Um, it's maybe it, it's maybe a little more clean than C because C lets you do all sorts of 
I mean, not compared to some languages, not like PHP, but it lets you do some kind of crazy stuff, and it's like, well, that's everything made sense until this. Now this is a little logical thing that you threw in there as well <laughs> that doesn't yeah. doesn't map to the rest of the definition. I mean, that's the thing. The action manual has basically like the definition of of the language, like you know, keyword here, and then the next thing after that. I, I don't remember. Uh, basically, the syntax is described in the manual, um, which is really awesome. Uh, but you know, it has its bugs. I, I finally printed out the bug sheet and was like, oh, maybe maybe there's just some of the things that have been affecting me in some of the stuff I've done in the past or lately, like little little quirks of the compiler. Um, but it's, most of it's stuff you can work around. Uh, you just need to you need to re- remember that there's a bug there that never got fixed, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, I'll, de- I'll definitely take a look at the source. Yeah, I actually I took the um uh, the source code, the action source code, I ported it to C pretty immediately. This is back when I was in college. Um, it was b- before I knew about Linux, actually. It was at school we had um, Max and uh, like a Solaris slash SunOS box. I can't even remember which one oh, was first. Yeah. I guess it was SunOS first. And then I think SunOS, yeah. Yeah, and then, it was, then it, we upgraded to Solaris. But basically, I ported it to, to X11. Um, and then shortly after that, I learned about Linux, and I learned about uh, the simple direct media layer libraries, SDL, which I fell in love with immediately. Um, the main reason I, I started using SDL is because I, I could do sound effects more easily than catting to the to the audio device under <laughs> on a Unix then box, which just sounded awful. Awesome. Yeah, I just crazy. like you know copy a AU file directly to the device and make noise. But uh, <laughs> and I had this thing that would let me play multiple sounds. It let me play like Amiga mod music files. So that was that was awesome. And then eventually I'm like, you know what? It also does color and keyboard and joystick and all this other stuff. I can just completely ditch X11. And it was a really good idea that I did because it's portable to multiple operating systems. So basically everything I've written in SDL. Including yeah. including Gemdrop, finds its way on like little Nokia tablets or the Dreamcast or Android phones. I mean, just it's ridiculous where it shows up. Um, so it's it's really nice how portable it ended up being. I kind of picked a winner when I <laughs> stumbled upon that one. And in terms yeah. of it turns out it was a guy that was a um, I live in Davis, California now. And it, was, it was a guy that went to school here and he graduated basically right before I moved to town here. So uh, I go oh, that did SDL. Yeah, same same Lentinga. I always joke that his middle name must start with a D. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but um, but yeah, no, he he went on to work on like World of Warcraft and stuff like that. He worked at Blizzard for a while and all sorts of cool stuff. He's a super smart guy, um, oh, nice. and really nice, really friendly. Um, it's 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 nice when you you hang out with a friendly crowd of developers rather than the curmudgeonly <laughs> crowd. Of yeah, developers. you get some cutthroat people who don't want to share their stuff, and then mm-hmm. and then you can get you know real teams that sort of share their resources. You know, it's the open source world. You know what you idealize is an open source world. Yeah. You know? Yeah, actually, um, so some of my games, including Gemdrop, actually found their way to uh, well, that one's called Gemdrop X because it was the X window port. So I have to remember to call it Gemdrop X. But again, <laughs> it, it 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 is literally a port from the action source code. So it's <laughs> it's, it's great. It's the same game, you know. Maybe the timing's a little bit faster or slower or something, but it's, it's the same game, same rules. If there's any bugs, probably the same bugs. Um, but uh, it's actually it is or it, it, at least was, if not still, on uh, Virgin Atlantic or Virgin Airlines. Virgin Airlines uh, seatback entertainment system. Oh, nice. So, and and what's funny is it's logged many miles. Then oh, I know. Yeah, I've never even ridden one of those fl- one of those uh, planes. Um, yeah, I had, I added one Easter egg to the to the. Linux version, and it was uh, my face, like a photo of me from high school, so it was a couple of years prior at that point. Now, at this rate, it's like 20 plus years old, but my face bounces around on the title screen. And I heard there's apparently a bug in the Virgin, Alain- Virgin Airline system where if you were playing the game and then you switched to some other app, like CNN News app or something, like the game is, I guess, still kind of running in the background, so once my face starts bouncing around, somebody, somebody took, a, took a photo of the seat back with like CNN news with my face. <laughs> I'm like leaving a trail or something on it. 
So which was which was embarrassing but hilarious. That's like you know they're like, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> that guy just broke your seat back. Um, <laughs> you have a wanted poster in the Virgin Airlines. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. I was sitting, sitting around in college hacking on my Atari, making a game. Basically, rip, it's basically a rip off of um. We haven't covered this yet. It's basically a rip off of a game called uh, Magical Drop Three. Uh, which is an SNK arcade game, and the funny thing with that is, um, it was at the local, it was at the local arcade, and I, I I looked at it from a distance. You know, I was standing there talking to a friend or something. I was kind of seeing it in the background. I was thinking to myself, I could write that. And I go home and I start writing it. And then about a week later, I go back to the arcade and I finally actually stick a quarter in it and play it. And I go, oh, <laughs> the gameplay is a lot different than what I assumed it was from just watching the track screen or whatever. So I had to go home and, and hack it a little bit more to make it more like the, the actual game. Oh, so you didn't, you didn't make it more like the game? Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, went, I went back to make it more like the actual game. But yeah, basically it's, it's, a, it's a little timed puzzler, kind of like an upside-down Tetris-ish, columns-ish game. Um... And uh, and yeah, I, ha- I happen to have the uh, the Sega Genesis controllers around, and I, f- I figured out that you can read uh, the C button as though it were the paddle uh, input controller. Oh, okay. One paddle basically, and um, so I use that, and you have the option if you have a Dreamcast or uh, not Dreamcast, uh, Genesis controller, you can uh, you can switch in that mode and, and use the B and the C buttons to play the game. Otherwise, if you have a regular joystick, you can use up and down. Yeah, I just played with the joystick, so you just press was it up? I think. Yeah, up to throw down down to grab. Yeah, you just yeah. try to make try to make matches. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, um, if, I guess one of the other things that, that you mentioned that you want to talk about was um, the, the graphics mode that I came up with for that game. Yeah, yeah. So I have a, a precursor to that question. So what is because the graphics mode you came up with you, you called Super IRGs, but what does IRG stand for? Because you know, Antic Four and Five are basically the modes we're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I don't have no idea. Um, that's a good question. I, I, I have a thought in my mind that I remember not knowing at one point in my life, and if I ever did know, then I've forgotten since. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's basically it's Antic Modes Four and Five, also known as Graphics Twelve and Thirteen, on the. Uh, on the XL operating system, so it's basically like 40 characters by 24 or by 12 if you're in the other mode. Right. Um, but they're four colors, so they're four pixels across. Um, and then you get basically like you would in, in graphics seven or graphics 15 mode or seven plus if you're an old fogey. Yeah. Um, two bits give you four colors, um, so colors zero, one, two, or three. One little trick in our G mode though is, is when you use an inverse character, it doesn't reverse all the bits, which would give you basically kind of a scrambled set of colors. Yeah. Um, it when it detects that, um, when it, I guess it's Antic does or is a GTI at this point. Um, one of those guys, one of our friendly chips, mm-hmm. simply picks a different color. So um, anything that would be color number three becomes color number four um, in your palette. So you could do something like you know if, if you had letters that were all kind of reddish, you can have them all kind of bluish instead. Um, or have, the, have that one color become blue instead of red when you're in inverse. Yeah. So you can do some kind of color highlighting. So, so in, that, in that sense, it is a little bit more capable graphics-wise than graphics 15 mode or 7 plus mode because uh, you actually get one extra color per scan line that way. Um, yeah. And which color is With, that? That's, uh, without tricks. Without, yeah, without tricks. So what I did is I decided to use some tricks. So um, for folks who are kind of new to the Atari or getting back into the Atari, back in the... Uh, mid to late 80s, um, uh, graphics mode was invented called Epic, Any Point, Any Color. And there was there were some variations of this, and I'm, I'm sure, it's actually, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's all covered on Wikipedia. Honestly, it's, it's kind of funny that something like this is on Wikipedia, but I guess they've got... Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a very, like, processor-intensive mode, is that right? Um, well, Epic, Epic mode um, doesn't really have to be. It depends on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
on, on the uh, on the GTA chips, you've got um, three of these kind of 16-ish color modes. Um, one of them is 16 shades of a particular hue, and that's where the Atari actually becomes a 256 color machine versus 128 than it normally is. Right. Yeah. And then there's a 16 hue of any sh- any shade mode, although the background is always black. Um, and I think if you change the background's hue, weird stuff happens that I don't remember um, huh. what or why. If it's like a side effect, or if that was something that they they intended for it to do, but um, but basically all I've ever seen it used for is, is um, having 16 hues of a particular shade. Um, and then there's a palette mode, but since the Atari only has nine um, color palette locations, so it's got uh, colors, background color, and then colors zero through was it four now? Yeah. Yeah. And then and player missile colors. And then the player, and then the the four player missile colors. Yeah. Um, so that's nine colors. So basically, it's it's still sixteen colors that you can assign, but only the first nine of them actually do anything. Um, and those you can set to whatever color. Yeah. But basically, since you need four bits per pixel to get sixteen, um, and since the Atari seems to have this phobia of having more than about forty bytes per scan line, um, you get this whopping resolution of eighty pixels across. But it's 192 pixels tall, which is pretty nice. You can you can yeah. get some interesting looking stuff. Like the there was the the walking robot demo that Atari had right. back in yeah I remember uh, that one yeah uh, the grayscale one yeah, yeah XC Power it was kind of a cyan scale <laughs> um, yeah. or, or the uh, the Lucasfilm intros um, including the spaceship at the beginning of uh, Rescue on Fractalus mm-hmm. Fractalus Fract- Fractulous? I never know. Fractalus? I don't know. Right, that fractal. Jag behind like, your, behind jaggy lines. Like our our version of Karataka or Karatika. Yeah. You know, it's Karataka. It's Fractalus. Yeah, it's Karataka Kura- because it's not Japanese. No. Um. <laughs> Karatika. Yeah, I don't know. We always. What did we call it? I think we. I think I we called it Karatika back in, in when I grew up. Karatika. I think that's closer to accurate. Um. Anyway. <laughs> uh. So 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 there was a, there was a mod that that they came up with. And they said, well, what if we interleave? And if you look at if you look back at Dairy Atari. Um, in the like the first couple of chapters, when they're talking about things you can do with the Atari and the graphics, they kind of like foresee this. They kind of foretell that this is something that people will start doing. Basically, what you do if you, if you interleave every other, um, well, so the the simplest one is to basically flicker back and forth between a full screen of just the gray of a picture and then a full screen of just the color of a picture. And with persistence of vision, and if you don't get a headache too fast, you can perceive 256 colors basically. Um, Oh, so this is still be at the 80 by 192 resolution. Yeah, it's 80 by 192, yeah. but instead of by 16 of one or the other, right. it's actually 16 times 16, so 256. So you get all right. all the glorious Atari colors a little bit washed out because they're not they're not truly coming out of the antic that way. Where's the GTA? But on on a CRT, it probably looks looks pretty good. Yeah, it looks okay. Yeah, when you get into emulators, you start having timing issues and stuff. But when you've got a real Atari, it's 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 going to be pumping it out at 60 hertz. Or fifty if you're in power, which, yeah. which is probably why this kind of stuff is less popular in in, in Europe um, as a trick. Yeah. Um, so basically, you can get two hundred six colors that way, and then and then to to ease the brain and and not have a seizure, um, somebody came up with the idea of well, why don't we just interleave, have one one line of gray and then another line of color hue, and another line of gray and another line of color, and just interleave them like that. You end up with only eighty by ninety six addressable pixels, if you want to call them that. Because um, mm-hmm. they're they're two pixels, two scan lines tall, but you get this kind of like you know you're looking through a comb version of 256 colors at 80 by 96. 
Um, now, if you jiggle that up and down, one scan line, just shake it. <laughs> or if you, you know, if you sit on a washing machine while you're looking at the screen, I guess would work as well. Um, then they blend together a little bit more. So you get a little bit of a flicker, but you still get 80 by 96, 256 colors. Um, now, what if instead of just shaking them, you actually have two full screens? One of color gray, color gray, color gray, and the other one of gray, color, gray, color, gray, color. And then mm -hmm. you just switch back and forth between those two screens and that two setups of, of the display, display list where one, one, is one, one is hue and one is color, and then the next frame it swaps. Basically, at, at a speed of about 30 hertz, you're getting 80 by 192, 256 color. So you're getting much higher resolution now. Um, so that's that's the 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 best uh, epic mode I think is 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 what you can have where you're at the highest resolution but you're not flickering the entire screen at once you're getting a, a much more subtle yeah. shimmer you could say um, so then people took that the next step and they came up with a um, oh Clay was it Clay Halley what was his name oh I hope I'm not getting the names mixed up um, came up with Color View and he actually he actually made a GIF decoder that did Epic stuff and he made one that did um, uh, Color View and I think even yeah, I think I believe he made a JPEG decoder at one point in the uh, wow. mid to late 90s um, super slow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as you can imagine um, but instead instead of using grayscale mode and then hue mode he uses three grayscale modes but then he tints them red green blue. Um, so what he did, what he did there was basically three full screens of the first frame is red green blue red green blue the next one is green blue red green blue red the next one is blue red green blue red green oh, now, now you get eighty by one ninety two by four thousand ninety six colors and you're getting what you can call true color because you can map it to any RGB values within these twelve bits basically. Um, you're talking like twenty hertz I guess. Well no it's um you're still getting the full screen but it, whenever you get like a solid batch of red or green or blue, you can kind of see a little bit of black in between them kind of shimmering, like um, waterfall effect. Um but generally it's pretty good and especially on, on a monitor we can fiddle with the, the contrast and the brightness and then on the Atari he had options for, for changing the, the tint and the brightness and so forth of these things. Huh, well. Um yeah, that's impressive. It actually, I mean, when when you don't have a PC and you want to look at a a GIF or something, like yeah, that was the way to do it. Um, but yeah, you're 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 eating up at that point though. You're eating up 24k of, of RAM just for that picture, though, that one solid picture. So so not much can be done with that. But um, but so I looked at that and I said, I actually have two ideas. One idea I came up with, and I was a little bit mad that uh, somebody else came up with it at the same time. I thought they stole my idea and didn't credit me, but they they basically came up with it simultaneously. Um. Back in the day, you know, I, I didn't have an 80-column card, and almost nobody had an 80-column card, really. Nobody, nobody was into that. Everything was all 40-column. But once you start dialing into these BBSs, you wanted 80-column. So I thought, well, rather than having 8K of, of memory and then having to blit these characters, you know, half a byte at a time as they come in, why not use a 40 by 24 screen, but then have another 40 by 24 screen that's the other characters, and then just switch between a font with the left half having a character and the right half being blank, and vice versa. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's, that's where you get the Flickr Term 80 mm -hmm. modem software and, and Flick 80 uh, mode. You can actually just load it from DOS, and then all of a sudden BASIC and DOS and stuff will be in this mode, which is kind of cool. And, of course, you know, that still has some Flickr as well, but the interesting thing that... Um, shoot, I forget this guy's name. Uh, the interesting thing that he found was because of the fact that the characters aren't always on the screen at the same time, you can get four-pixel-wide characters, like the letter M, um, much better than you could in just like a, a 320 by 192 graphics 8 mode, where when they're stuck together, they just become white. 
Oh, because the flicker kind of gives it a little bit of border, essentially? It gives it a little tiny, you can just tell that there's like two M's next to each other or whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think, he, I think he used sprite overlays, which of course are only going to be at like 40 widths, basically. If you get all five sprites across the screen at quadruple width, you get basically 40 pixels across. Um, and he, he used that for like highlighting, for like ANSI. Um, or VT, oh, nice. VT colors. Yeah, so it was, it was pretty cool. Um, uh, my friend Itay, 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 Chimiel, I never know how to pronounce his name, Itay, um, he actually, he made uh, Ice-T, and he actually recently came out with a new version of Ice-T. Um, he doesn't do that. He actually uses the, the 320 by 182 mode, but instead of, you know, when you get to the bottom of the screen, one of the things you've noticed in, in those full graphics, 80 column modes, is the whole screen will have to scroll up, and it's moving basically almost an entire oh, sure. 8 kilobytes yeah. and then erasing one line. Well, what he did was basically just erase one line and then completely fiddle with the, the display list and just say, well, point here instead. Oh, so yeah, basically yeah. it's like almost in- instantaneous scrolling. Like super high speed. Um, Thanks, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know, isn't that awesome? I'm loving it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so what I, what I did is, is, you know, I came up with that Flickr idea that, that somebody much smarter than me actually used for something, um, made modem software and so forth for, um, and a dr- e-driver and all that. Um, uh, thank you, Atari OS, for letting us replace the e-driver. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I still love this machine. It was such a good machine. Um, but, so what I did is I decided, well, what if, what if I want to do something kind of like Epic Mode, but um, as text? So, for example, if, if you want dark red, if you, ha- if you have black and red in your palette, and you want kind of a dark red, or if you have, like, blue and red and black, and you want, like, purple, you mix red and blue or red and black. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but since we're talking about characters and we're not doing anything, like, scanline-based, um, that means I can, I can get rid of the shimmer effect by doing a checkerboard effect. So one character, or the, the character of one set will have like a checkerboard with the top left being off, and then go from there. So off, on, off, on, off, like that. Yeah. And then the alternate mode would have it on, and then off, and then on and off. So that gives you a much more, um, like the interleaving is both vertical and horizontal, so you get less of a shimmer effect. Uh, you still get a little bit of flicker, but it's, it's way more subtle. And then I calculated, I think you get like maybe 13 colors, and the math is really hard on the, <laughs> in the IRG modes. Um, but basically you get, you know, Four colors. Yeah, I was, I was trying to figure out how the, how you get that many colors, and I couldn't. Ne- I could never make sense of it. Um, yeah, you, that fifth color is the one that makes it complicated. But um, but basically, if, if you ignore the fifth color, if, if you come up with a, a a grid, a four by four, you get like one triangle of that, because the other side of the triangle is just the same color, just you know, black plus red equals red plus black. They're both the same. So mm. um, here, let me let me <laughs> let me do this real quick. So uh, color one two three four times one two three four. So if you go one by one, you get one. If you go two by one, you get this new color, so five. And then two by two is two again. Um, and then one by three is number six. And two by three is number seven. And three by three is number three. And then let me see, uh, eight, nine, ten, and then number four again. So so that's ten colors. Um, and then with, with one of those colors being swapped out, so color four being swapped out for color five, you basically get like another row of three more colors. You get color five mixed with one, two, and three. But yeah, so so I did that, and and um, you know the the initial like when I first started making the game, I, I had the idea of doing this because oh, it'd be great for a puzzle game. So then I saw that puzzle game, and I'm like, well, I'll just do that. Um, so the initial test of the game, and I almost certainly don't have the source code anymore because I, I basically rewrote everything over the same file or something. There's no version or histories. <laughs> um, but I basically made the game in graphics 2 mode, so that's 20 across by 12 down, which is basically what you get. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm using the the tiles is two by two, 
Right, yeah, yeah. But in, in 40 by 24 mode, so I basically get 20 by 12. So in terms of testing the gameplay and so forth, I just did graphics 2 with a bunch of Atasky garbage characters, like numbers and letters and whatever, um, to test the game. And then eventually I, I threw the graphics screen on top of it. So in the end, all the graphics screen is just one vertical blank interrupt that basically toggles between these two fonts. Right, and that's, I mean, it's awesome. It doesn't take, it's not like you're writing a whole 2600 kernel or something to, to massage these colors. It's just, yeah, one vertical blank and swap. And yeah. essentially, the, the game logic itself doesn't have anything to doesn't need to know about it. Yeah, the hard part is actually coming up with the fonts. And I'm trying to remember, I think I, think I mostly did the fonts by hand. Um, so if yeah, I wanted yeah. colors, I'd have to remember that, like, okay, off and then on is one color, and then on and off <laughs> is another color, and two on next to each other is this other color. Um, so eventually, I made um, what I called Super IRG Font Editor. Which, uh, boy, is that an action? I can't even remember now. It's probably an action. <laughs> um, but basically, it's, it's something that lets you paint in that mode. Um, it's very basic. It doesn't let you do really fancy stuff or, or rotate a character or whatever, because it's kind of hard to rotate a character when they're not square pixels and so forth. But, um, um, and so what, what year was this that you did all this? Uh, 97. And then in uh, 97-98-ish, let me see, 97, I was still in school. 98 is when I graduated. And then a little after 98 is when I um, ported it from X to SDL, because I probably did it in X at school still, when I had uh, access to the Solaris boxes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but so, really, so this is, this is really the, f- the first use of this. Um, essentially, you created this mode. This is the first time anybody ever did this, right? Yeah, so far as I know. Um, it, it's not really been used much since. Um, there's a fellow that I became friends with on Facebook uh, named Bobby Clark, who took the idea and just kind of flew with it. And I haven't even really paid that close attention. But he's done things like... Mix the uh, the antic modes like the the um, eighty across modes within fonts basically. Um, mix them together. Mix them with um, I'm sorry the GTI modes. Uh, mix them with the other modes like the the, the IRG modes or even yeah. Mix- I, I I read some of the posts on Atari Agent. I couldn't figure out are there, is he like vertical blank swapping like the like say antic four with a GTI mode or is are they somehow changing the antic four characters to be four pixels wide? Um, no, no, he's actually, I believe he's actually switching, say, from, like, graphics mode 12 to graphics mode, well, uh, well, what it is is, is, you, is you mess with the, um, the G prior register, basically, so you, you can actually be in, like, graphics zero mode and basic and type, like, poke 623 comma something, like, 64 or something like that, all of a sudden all of your characters are two pixels wide and in grayscale, <laughs> um, so, so he, does, he does that, but he probably, um, boy, I have to go back and look, I meant to do that before we did this interview, but, um, but basically, um, I'm pretty sure he does it within the display list. So he, he mixes them per scan line rather than as, as a whole character or a whole screen at once. Um, so he probably has a little DLI that just says, you know, wait for, for vertical sync or horizontal sync, whatever, whatever WSync sync is. <laughs> wait, for, yeah. wait for horizontal sync. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then, you know, toggle and then wait again, toggle, wait again, toggle. So, so that slows it down a little bit. That, that eats into your CPU time a little bit compared to, to mine, which is just like a really, like I said, Infinitely, yeah, an almost free vertical blank interrupt. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he gets all these kind of wild and crazy modes that he's been working on. But this, you know, again, mm-hmm. this is kind of neat stuff that you can you can ponder about with with the hardware from 1970. Yeah, no, that is really cool. I mean, it's so flexible, and you know, it all stems from the 2600 being as flexible as it was. And oh, the irony, because it was just meant to play like two games. <laughs> I know, right? But they, 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 you know, they had they put so little into it that you had to be clever to get anything done. Therefore. You know, you could do all sorts of clever stuff to get all sorts of things done. Like, yeah. If you haven't, if you haven't read Racing the Beam, re- read Racing the Beam. It, it totally gave me a new insight into what these games are. Like, I look at Pitfall totally differently than I. I know, right? 
Yeah, and no, I, I love that book, and I uh, I sponsored a contest on Ferg's. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Book. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's an excellent book. Um, yeah. I read it a while back. I kind of want to go back and read it again. But I've got, I got Kevin's book to finish reading, which I really started. I've got Kurt and Kurt and uh, Marty's book, which I got like oh, a third of the way the through. The tome. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm excited because I'm I'm approaching 1979, the Atari 400-800 era, but I haven't gotten there yet, and I just haven't had the time or energy to sit down and read. I just yeah. There's a there's a great section on it. You'll you'll like it. Okay, and uh, I there's an interview with. Uh, Joe DeCure, who said he's in the process of writing a sort of racing the beam style book for the 800, which I'm just totally looking forward to. That's right. I think I knew that. Oh, that's right. Oh, something to be excited about. Cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's 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 a good time to be uh, into the old stuff. I think these days with with all the podcasts yeah. and the Facebook and the internet. Facebook is kind of like Usenet but easy. So <laughs> you know, you would have your little u- world of Usenet, and you can go find like, oh, I found the Atari Lynx group, and there's like four people there. You know, like back in the 90s, because nobody knew about Usenet. Now there's actually like groups and people posting videos on YouTube, and it all kind of like cross pollinates, which is super awesome. So yeah, it's a great time to be an 8-bit fan for sure. Yeah, I know. I the irony. <laughs> All my friends made fun of me in school. Ah, take that. No. <laughs> take that. We got you back 30 years later. I know. <laughs> yep. Totally. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem. It was, it was awesome. Thanks a lot. Alrighty. All right. Bye. See you. Bye. So thanks again to Bill Kendrick for talking to me about uh, Gemdrop and the Super IRG graphics modes. I also forgot to mention that Bill is the force behind the Atari party out here in the Bay Area. Last year it was in um, Sunnyvale, but I think this year it's going to be up in Davis, California. So hopefully I'll be able to make it to that. And there's a bunch of Atari, there's a bunch of Atari machines set up, and um, yeah, it was a lot of fun to see all those old, all those old machines and running all the games and uh, not only 8-bit stuff, but they had 5200s, 2600s, Lynxes, and some Atari arcade games. So that was a lot of fun. So yeah, I will definitely try to make it to this year's Atari party. So this is homebrew software. This is the first homebrew software that I've covered in the podcast, and you know clearly this is not in chronological order. So any other homebrews that I do will will not will likely not be in chronological order. So we started in the late '90s and released the 8-bit version sometime after that. And as it was re- released as open source, you can get it on his website, and I'll include a direct link to that in the show notes. There's not much of a manual. There's a description, and the description is, you grab gems up to 10 of the same color and use them to knock more gems off the screen, match three or more of the, the same color in a column, and bam, they explode. Any ad- adjacent gems of the same color also explode, causing a chain reaction that might cover the entire screen. The more gems that disappear with one shot, the higher score you get. This game is played using a joystick, or, as Bill mentioned in the interview with a, a Sega gamepad, because the gamepad, I guess, has two buttons, and so you can select, if you're using a gamepad, to use the left and right for the direction, but and use the two buttons for pulling gems up and, and shooting them back, or pulling gems down and shooting them back up. Using the joystick, you don't use the button at all. You move left and right, and then pull down on the stick to grab gems, and then push up on the stick to, to launch the gems back up. The game seems to play fine on all the emulators I tried, the display of the Super IRG mode, however, does vary. And like I said, Altera with the blending termin- turned on seems to generate the colors as intended. I typically play on a, the Atari 800 emulator, which is the Unix-based or cross-platform emulator, but you know I can run it on Linux. Yeah, the it should the flicker shows up, so you can see when the 
each uh, frame goes in and out. And I don't, you know, I can't understand how it can't get that correct and yet still emulate the machine correctly. So I really don't know what's going on there. Maybe it's just purely an inter- uh, problem with the graphics refreshing and not the internals. I mean, it can't be the internals of the emulator are not working correctly because clearly if it can't generate a vertical blank at the right spot, then many more games, not just this, are not going to work correctly. Oh, I know. Well, maybe that's overstating it. I have a guess. I bet this could be what happens when the graphics refresh isn't synced to the vertical refresh of your monitor. There was a thread on the Atari 800 development mailing list uh, last year sometime where someone had figured out how to sync the vertical blank of the Atari 800 emulator to the Raspberry Pi's vertical blank. But I guess the solution wasn't general enough to be applicable to other systems or something. I didn't really look, I didn't really look at the code. I, but, you know, you can imagine if the refresh rate doesn't sync up quite correctly, you know, say if it, if the machine itself is at like 61 hertz and your monitor is 60 hertz, I could sort of imagine this, you know, desynchronization of the, of the flickering. So, I don't know. That's a guess. Who knows? Maybe sort of the equivalent of moiré effects or kind of the, the way when you look out at a cornfield when you're driving by, you can see sort of rows sometimes, but not a, other angles? Does that even make sense? I haven't even been drinking. So the gameplay itself, yeah, this is a fun game. This is one that, were it on my phone, I would play it a lot when I'm just like hanging around or waiting for something. And I think it'll be a game that I'll, I'll definitely have on the main cabinet for the kids to play. So yeah, you can start, the, the, higher, the higher difficulty that you start the game, the more lines of gems are on the top of the screen. And every so often, every, every some number of seconds, I don't know what it is, 20 seconds or something, the screen kind of shakes and the gems move down a level and so a new j- row of gems is inserted up top. So when the gems reach the bottom of the screen, the game's over. So by pulling gems down at the same color, you sort of gather these up and then when you launch them back up to destroy other gems, you re- remove sections of the gems from the upper screen. And in this way, you can sort of clear out rows and stuff. There are four or five different styles of the gems. And there's a little clock and some other sort of one-of-a-kind things. There's a, there's mystery gems, and um, I found it pretty difficult that I could only get... I think I got... The most I got was about 18 lines before they would, I just could not keep up. It's a very fast-paced game, and like I said, it's one you can just pick up and play and then leave and do something else. But it's one I'm sure I'll come back to. I discovered this game when... I think I was on uh, Bill Kendrick's website uh, looking about at the Atari party you know, back a while ago. But I didn't really play it. And then I'm sort of running out of games in the 1981 sort of era that I said, well, let's try a homebrew game. I remember this game, so I downloaded it. Yeah, and I I enjoyed it immediately. It was, even without really looking at the the instructions, I could kind of figure out what was going on. And again, I think that's kind of the game that I'm going to be focusing on from here on out. Because although I will cover Eastern Front in the next episode, it's just, yeah, it's too much of a time investment for me to try to figure out a strategy game. So for the foreseeable future, it's going to be arcade-style games only. My high score on Jump Drop, I got 69.50, which I think was four or five screens in. And so I, I have no idea. I like, you know, like I said, I'm not a great game player, so I'm sure it's not that astounding of a score. As far as I could tell, it was not done on the Atari Age High Score Club. And a normal section of the podcast is a modern, uh, modern updates. And <laughs> this is about as modern as you get. It's a homebrew game that's current. So there you go. It is its own modern update. Next episode, I'm going to cover May 1981 and Eastern Front 1941 by Chris Crawford. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. And thanks to all of you who have sent me some feedback over the past seven episodes. 
It's kept me motivated. You can follow me on Twitter at Atari8BitGames or send email to feedback at playermissile.com. I'm a member of the Throwback Network, so check out throwbacknetwork.net for tons of quality retro-themed podcasts. So to close out the podcast, here's the here's the version of Handel's Messiah that was in the soft side, issue number 31. And I will see you next episode. Atari person, this is my ringtone. <laughs>